Atamari, welcome to First Up at Sarapari. That's Thursday, the 21st of July. Nathan Rarere, I hope. Coming up, we're going to head to uh, Henry Riley in the sweltering heat of the UK. Temperatures topping 40 degrees for the first time yesterday. We're going to talk inflation with Finance and Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. A senior clinician from Starship Children's Hospital joins us to explain how they're coping with the triple whammy of COVID, flu and of course staff shortages. And we talk to a tech expert about the risky business of sharing personal information on social media. In some cases these apps are probably collecting a lot more data than would happen if somebody had a private investigator tail you and and try and uh, create a dossier on you. Koto, welcome to First Up for today. Lots happening around the world. We're going to get, um, yeah, we are actually going to speak to correspondents all around the planet. Let's begin in the UK. So it's down to two final candidates in the race to replace Boris Johnson as the leader of the Conservative Party, and by that, they become the Prime Minister of the UK. So it's going to be Liz Truss in one corner facing off against Richie Sunak uh, for the Prime Ministership. Now, from a scorching London, I asked our very, very hot correspondent, Henry Riley, to give us a rundown on the two candidates uh, starting with, I think when we ask about this Rishi Sunak. Well, Kia ora, Nathan. Thanks for having me on. Um, so Rishi Sunak is a very famous face in the UK. Why? Well, he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, so he was in charge of the nation's finances and he got that role purely by fluke, really. He was the number two in the department when the Chancellor, when Boris first started, Sajid Javid, was removed from the role by one of Boris's influential advisors. So he was sort of put into this role uh, in very early 2020. And then lo and behold, a pandemic struck and he was in charge of the nation's finances at perhaps the most uh, important time uh, in decades. And he obviously was in charge of the furlough scheme, which we've spoken about on many occasions, where he was giving out money to various people uh, in the in the UK. And he's attracted a lot of criticism recently because, yes, he was the chancellor, he was in charge of the finances, but he's also from an extremely wealthy background. His wife uh, comes from a very wealthy family. Her father is one of the richest men, I think, in fact, in the world. He was involved in a company called Infosys. And he's from an extremely wealthy background. And he had a lot of controversy some months back because he holds, doesn't anymore, sorry, held a US green card, which meant that he had residency over there for tax reasons. And his wife did as well because of her earnings. So he is a former chancellor, a very experienced uh, politician in the UK. And actually, Nathan, one of the architects of Boris Johnson's downfall, because it was only a few weeks ago where he was the second cabinet minister to resign. Sanjay Javid was the first. He followed only eight minutes later. And he was really the man that brought Boris Johnson down. Yeah, that's right. He was too. And he's, yes, he's, I've, I've heard him speaking. He's remarkably posh. Let's talk about Liz Truss, who, I mean, look, if you're just going off funny video clips of people, the little short clips of her doing her speeches, they're, they're not doing her a lot of help. But tell us about Liz Truss. No, you're quite right. And she's not well known for her sort of rhetorical skills. In fact, during one of the TV debates, there have been two in the UK with all of the candidates. In fact, we had 11 candidates. We're now down to two. So the process has taken uh, long enough. But Liz Truss is actually the member's favourite to take over. Rishi Sunak has the most popular support in terms of MPs. He has way, you know, way ahead. He's got 137 uh, MPs, which is, you know, considerably uh, more than various other candidates. And, uh, you know, he is the favorite, sorry, she is the favorite to beat uh, Rishi Sunak, despite the fact she doesn't have as many MPs supporting her. The members favor her. Why do they favor her? Well, she is seen as being more hard line on various policies. Now, what's interesting is Rishi Sunak voted for Brexit. Liz Truss voted for Remain. But Liz Truss totally flipped her position and is now considered 
with the stronger Brexiteer out of the two. So all the Brexiteers, practically, are a few exceptions, are backing Liz Truss. Now, she is very loyal to the Prime Minister. She has served as Foreign Secretary uh, for, for, for the last year or so, but she's been a, a sort of stalwart member of Boris Johnson's cabinet, serving as a uh, minister in the Treasury Department and also as the International Trade Secretary. She's considered very loyal. She didn't resign, despite the fact we essentially the whole government resigning uh, a few weeks back. And she's got a very interesting background. She was actually uh, a Liberal Democrat, one of our centre parties in the UK. As I say, she was a big Remainer, which was, isn't considered a sort of uh, right position right-wing position uh, in the UK. And she's actually against, she was against Margaret Thatcher and against nuclear uh, weapons back in her early days. So she's sort of had a bit of a political journey, but is considered to be the hardline face and is wildly expected to be the favourite to win this competition uh, or this race when it ends and we have a winner in early September. Wow. Okay. well, I can't wait for this. And of course, Boris will just keep showing up to work like he has been and going for flights and jets and filming little videos of himself this whole time. He's played this very well. Not many people have, you know, managed to just keep getting the paycheck. Yeah, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Are you? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Just <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, look, I mean, the heat wave is um, obviously quite huge news there in Britain. Tell us, how have you been coping and how what, what things have you invented to try and keep cool? Well, I haven't been particularly inventive. I've really struggled to sleep the last few nights. Just to give you a scale of the heat wave, I mean, it's incredible. Our hottest temperature was previously recorded in 2019. That was 38.7 degrees in Cambridge. Look back at yesterday, 40.3. We broke 40 degrees Celsius for the first time. That was in Coningsby in Lincolnshire, which has sparked a sort of big debate with regards to climate change, as you can imagine. And Brits are going absolutely crazy about it. Also, it's all very well enjoying the hot weather, but it has been a sort of crazy day in terms of the armed, uh, sorry, in terms of the uh, the services as well. You look at the, I mean, 41 properties in the capital where I'm now, London, were destroyed. 16 firefighters were injured. It was a really difficult day for the various fire services. And Brits in the UK were told a serious incident was declared at 2 p.m. yesterday. And we were told, if we can, to stay at home, to work from home if we can, and to keep cool. So you've seen various people walking around with big sort of bottles of water. I was on the tube yesterday and someone had a wet flannel on their heads for the whole time, which if you'd done that a sort of few months back, people would have laughed at you. And actually, at one point, I wanted to snatch it off of him and run off and put it on my head. It was so bleeding hot. Uh, I've got a pretty rickety old fan, uh, which uh, which has sort of just about got me through it. But I'm afraid the sleepless nights are starting to catch up with me. It's Henry Riley. I wonder if they have, like, you know, voices for heatwave people over there that run around going, stop using that, that flannel on your head to cool down. It's terrible. You know, that kind of thing. I wonder if they do that. Anyway, uh, let's uh, continue on with heat. And this one's quite awful, too, as we move to Africa. The worst drought in four decades raging through the Horn of Africa. The World Food Programme says that up to 20 million people in Kenya, Ethiopia and Somalia face the risk of starvation by the end of this year. Somalia being the hardest hit, with entire villages being forced to leave their homes in search of food, water and medical aid. The BBC's Mercy Juma reports. When their crops failed, their gods died, and the local river dried up, Fardosa, her mother and five siblings left home and journeyed for five days to get to this IDP camp in Baidora, southwest Somalia. Some of the girls I used to play with are still alive. Some died, while others have moved to the capital city, Mogadishu, where they work as households. Over the past decade, Somalia has experienced three droughts, 2011, 2017, and now. Although I was much younger, 
I still remember about the previous drought. At least I remember the death of five children. We lost animals in the ongoing drought. We had three camels, they all died. We also had nine goats, some died. We have also lost all our chicken. We left behind the few remaining animals. Just outside Fardosa's makeshift hut, 12-year-old Kadi arranges some firewood in between three stones, lights a matchstick and throws it in, then blows air into the fire. Back in our rural area, people used to work in farms in the mornings, where they would be paid some money or get some sugar, which we used to cook tea. When the drought hit, people had diarrhea. We never had breakfast, lunch or dinner in one day. Kadi says she thinks about her friends in her village every day and misses them greatly. Save the Children says they are seeing an increase in psychosocial stress among children and their caregivers. Mahmoud Hassan is the country director of Save the Children in Somalia. We did a trend analysis early this year in one of the regions and that shows 81% increase in the number of unaccompanied children in IDP camps compared to the same period last year. Mohammed Hassan ending that report. To past five, you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radari, and the team. Wildfires continue to sweep across southern Europe. In Greece, Athens is surrounded by a ring of fire and temperatures beginning to rise the further north you go too with Germans bracing for heat in the late 30s. Joining us now as she's assembling some furniture in the ABBA capital of the world, Sweden, it's our correspondent Anita purcell Sherland. Kia ora, Doctor, how are you? Morena, fine, thank you. Okay, so the English have been talking about, oh, we're up at 40 degrees. Is there a heat wave in Sweden? Uh, there is at the moment. It, uh, officially, the temperatures are 29 degrees, but um, that's only in the shade. So yeah. out in the open, we're talking about you know anywhere from 30 to 35 degrees, and it's going to get warmer. Are they? Tell me about just housing and general life there. But they would would they be equipped for that? Because you know how New Zealand houses a lot of the villas in Auckland. It's if it's as if it never got cold in Auckland when they built them. But what's it like in Sweden? Well, the houses here are um, built so that they can um, they keep um, they obviously to keep warm in the winter. So it can be very hot inside as well as hot outside. So what most Swedes do is where I am is that we go to the lakes or go to the forest, which is uh, cooler. Um, so go walking in the forest, but you have of to course. be aware of very hot creatures such as bears, elks, deers, and wolves. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's, there's that whole added extra of going walking overseas out in the woods. There's, there's things trying to eat you. Um, actually, let, let's stick with the woods around Europe, though. It's um, a lot of it is on fire. Tell me about the, the current wildfire situation. Well, in Athens, around 500 firefighters have struggled for a second day to contain large wildfires in suburbs outside the Greek capital after hundreds of residents were evacuated overnight. Major fires have also affected Italy in the past days, causing temporary closure of key rail routes such as the one between Rome and Florence. The heat wave is moving northeastwards, impacting water levels in Germany, which is expected to have temperatures of up to 39 degrees. In Belgium, however, where the forecasters are warning of heavy rainfall, 
hailstorms and lightning strikes. And fires continue to burn across France, Spain and Portugal, but authorities are reporting improved conditions with a very small respite from soaring temperatures, which are expected to rise back to 40 degrees in the coming days. Wow. Okay, uh, let's talk about another thing uh, hitting Europe. This one, human controlled. The, the implementation of gas rationing after Russia has turned off the tap, what, what can you tell us about the plan? Well, on Wednesday, the Commission revealed a plan which included the gas reduction from the 1st of August to March next year to offset disruption to industries and essential services. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, the EU approved bans on Russian coal, but it did not include natural gas because of the bloc's dependency on it. Now the EU fears that Putin will cut off gas to try and create economic and political havoc in Europe this winter, and so EU member states will discuss the proposal in more depth next week. Mm. Um, now, something the Italians are really good at, uh, apart from food and clothing, that is, is just having different prime ministers all the time. Italy's prime minister resigned last week. Um, tell us about that one. But it just what it hasn't lasted that long. No, the former he's the former head of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, and he le- he's led a unity government for eighteen months, and was due to step down next year ahead of elections. However. He tendered his resignation last Thursday when a key coalition member, the populist and anti-establishment five-star movement, motioned for a no-confidence vote over policy disagreements triggering a political crisis. Then the Italian president, Sergio Mattarelli, stepped in by rejecting Mr Draghi's resignation, and so the prime minister decided to face down the five-star movement and its no-confidence vote next week. Ah, and uh, I like this one, a very European crime. Um, Tell me, who were the couple that were arrested for a multi-million dollar wine heist? Well, in Croatia, a man and woman were arrested for stealing 45 bottles of wine worth more than over 2.6 million Kiwi dollars from a Spanish restaurant last year, ending a nine-month international police hunt. Now, in October last year, the couple stayed at a hotel which is known for its expensive wines in southwest Spain and stole dozens of bottles of expensive French wine, including an 1806 Chateau de Creme, which is conservatively worth over $570. Now, the police said the couple moved around Europe, making it hard for officers to track them, but they were eventually tracked down to the border between Montenegro and Croatia and arrested in a joint Europol and Interpol operation. That must be the biggest bag if you're walking out of there with 45 bottles of wine in it. Um, (laughs) No wonder they were on the run for so long. But easy to catch up with because that's quite heavy. Uh, Thank you very much. Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland out of Sweden. Twenty-one minutes past five. I'm Nathan Rarity. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. Coming up, uh, it's apparently far too difficult for a lot of people to be wearing masks indoors nowadays. We asked the Deputy Prime Minister, isn't it time to just introduce some tougher rules on that? And I talk tech with an expert on the hazards of TikTok. It's time to head to the Bay of Plenty now, where our local democracy reporting programme, Newshounds, Diane McCarthy, has been on the beat. And we've got her up early. Uh, kia ora, Diane. How are you? Good Nathan. Um, hey. I'm good, thank you. Okay, so t- tell me, why is the, the Kawaro King of the Mountain race, why is that no more? Well, that's it's kind of a mystery. <laughs> Nobody's oh. saying. Um, the, um, I mean, no formal statement's been released um, about Zia's race, but those who have registered to compete um, and have paid their fees 
have been told that it's not happening and that it's uncertain whether it's going to take place in the foreseeable future. Oh, do, yeah. do they know? Uh, do you, do you know at all if they've been told if you know at least they'll get their money back for their entries? That they will be refunded their their entry fee. They um, had already paid for last year's race, which was cancelled due to COVID. Hmm. Um, they've been told that the reason for the closure this year, uh, the um, cancellation this year, is that uh, the landholders. That the landowners have um, refused to um, permit them um, to, go to go on the mountain. And this is a, um, a race, uh, a mountain race that's been going since 1955. Wow. Uh, and uh, this would have been the 66th um, annual race, um, which is a seven kilometre up and down trip up and down the mountain. Um, is there another mountain around that you that could be used? Um, not really. It's it's in the middle of a the Rangataki Plains. So this is oh. Mount Putuaki. It's um, I I approached um, the council who who organises has been organising the race for the last few years. Um, the Kawaro District Council, hmm. and um, they. Uh, and have told me that they they um, are not they haven't made an, a public announcement yet that the race is cancelled, um, and they've asked me to and they have said that they will be making a public announcement in due course. But um, in the meantime, they've contacted those who who they need to refund their fees to and said that. Um, yeah, the the reasons have been given by the landowners, um, which the the mountain is held in a trust by Namonga Kaitiaki Trust, um, and they had previously granted permits to people to walk up the mountain. Um, they they told us um, a few weeks ago that they were no longer going to be doing that for the foreseeable future. Right. So, so um, I, guess, I guess we wait to find out, um, you know, what what the what the new announcement will, will be. Diane, thank you very much for your time. Our local democracy reporting uh, program uh, programmer, uh, sorry, reporter out of Bay of Plenty is Diane McCarthy. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the day of our life we call the twenty first of July. Uh, some births of people that are no longer with us. Ernest Hemingway was born on this day in 1899. Marshall McLuhan, who ended up reading quite a bit of at school. Uh, he was a guy that came out with the medium as the message. Uh, was born in 1911. And Robin Williams, the great Robin Williams, born on this day in 1951. By the way, uh, the 21st of July every year is National Junk Food Day, apparently. Guilty pleasure with junk food? 2101. Don't lie, don't lie. Don't, oh, I never did. Yeah. Just even if you have. Guilty pleasure. Let's be honest here. Let's share. 2101. Guilty pleasure. Uh, National Junk Food Day. Uh, let's talk about people that are still with us. Um, John Lovitz. I love John Lovitz as a comedian and an actor. Just a unique fellow. If you're not quite sure, we're going, who's John Lovitz? Google John Lovitz. You'll go, oh, that? Yeah. Love him. His voice. He's one of those ones you look at his photo and all you can hear is his voice. Also born on this day, 67 years ago, Taco. 
who was born in Indonesia in 1955, he had Dutch parents. He's the one, you're going, who's Taco? Burst onto the scene in 1982 with his cover of Irving Berlin's Putting on the Ritz. Remember that guy? Yeah. Hey, apparently Taco still lives in Germany and performs at galas, so that's nice. Uh, Cat Stevens turned 74 today, but you call him Yusuf Islam. And on this day in 1987, American band Guns N' Roses released their landmark album Appetite for Destruction, which sold more than 17 million copies, and I bought two of those tapes because one of them got jammed in a tape player. As you'll know, the pain of that if you grew up in the 80s. And that is the day of our life that we like to call the 21st of July. It's business, it's business time. That's what you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. It's business, it's business time. Time now to speak to someone else who I would imagine at some stage in his life rewound a cassette tape by putting a pen in it and just swinging it around, 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 around so that you could save some battery for your Walkman. Kilda oh, Giles. you Kilda read, Giles Beckford. You read me like a cheap dub. <laughs> <laughs> a cheap mixtape. You used to go down and you'd get a box of uh, five for about yeah. you know four or five dollars, and then your mate would have a record and he'd dub, you know, dub some of it off for yeah. you, and then you get a track here and a track there. You record off the radio and the quality was crap. Oh, <laughs> yes. The good and old as, days. And as you say, you'd put it in the recorder and that damn thing would spool and go all over the That's place. Right. No, 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 it's gone. Anyway. <laughs> That was saying you never got to listen to Sig Sig Sputnik again. Uh, tell me about this changed the the visa rules. How how good is a New Zealand passport? Well, first of all, let's look at the visa rules. Government's yeah. changing the rules. These for investors, uh, the investment visa rules. Now, you remember in the past, basically somebody just rocked up with uh, say ten million dollars and said, uh, "I love your country. Here's ten million dollars. I want to invest. Uh, can I come and stay?" Uh, and if you were lucky, like Peter Thiel, you didn't have to stay very long. Uh, if you were a bit of a nobody, then you had to stay uh, a little bit longer, so many days in a year. So they've changed the rules because a lot of people were just putting the $10 million plus that they brought, they were just buying it into the share market or into the bank or buying government bonds or something. You know, it wasn't doing anything productive. So the new rules suggest that if you want to come here, <clears throat> one of the categories will be you put $5 million into uh, Nathan Incorporated, which has a fantastic new yes. gizmo that they're developing. Kitchen five, gizmo, yeah. Right, $5 million into your company, right, and that will be regarded as an active investment, um, uh, and you'll be able to uh, you know, ask for a visa and stay here a bit longer. If you just want to just come here and you just put your money in the bank, then in the end... Uh, you may end up having to do $15 million as a minimum uh, contribution to the economy. So the aim is to attract people with money to go into productive businesses, active businesses, um, to give them seeding finance or um, finance for expansion, hiring staff, developing products, services alike. We'll wait and see if it works. Uh, the previous categories were open to abuse, and I think a lot of people were unimpressed by them, that you could basically buy your way into the country. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I think that will still be the case. I mean, that's the whole point of these things is you want money, and yes, it would be nice if it goes into something productive, but you actually want money. And uh, Well, I mean, it does just say, oh, you know, if you've got more money, you're a better person, so we'd much rather have you. 
you know, well, which is pe- not not really a great starting block. There's supposed to be a character test, of course. Uh, that goes How much money things. do you have? Good <laughs> character. <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Going on to the passports very quickly. Survey yes. done. And it sort of goes hand in hand with these investment visa type rules. But um, survey done by a firm uh, in Britain, which says that New Zealand has the seventh most useful passport in the world. Um, and I mean, uh, by that they mean you can reach as many countries or more countries uh, the higher up the list you are, visa free um, or get a visa and knock on the door when you arrive. Uh, so. We're down one spot. Um, I know everybody likes to see what you know where we are on some global hit parade. So this is the passport hit parade. We're number seven, yeah. uh, the most popular passport or the best passport to get you almost anywhere in the world is Japanese, followed by Singaporean uh, and South Korean. So there you are. Well, that um, puts us number one per capita. That's all I'm going with. Probably I did some bad maths. No one work it out. No one. No one check my work, please. That's just what we. You're got. wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. Sing- Singapore's not got many more people than we have. Sorry, sorry. Sorry. I didn't realise the mic was still on. Yeah, still on, still on. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Giles Beckford there, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more reports from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10.27. To the money markets now, your New Zealand dollar is worth the following 62.37 US cents, 90.47 Australian cents, 61.17 Euro cents, 52.06 British pence, 4.21 yuan, 86.12 Japanese yen, and 32.7 77 Ethiopian brr. Well, uh, we head toward 6 o'clock right now. Uh, the Starship Foundation has started a fundraising appeal so that it can do more to support sick kids right around the country. I spoke with Starship Children's Hospital's Clinical Director of General Paediatrics, Dr Greg Williams, and I began by asking him how the hospital was coping at this difficult time. Yeah, very much front of mind. Every winter we see a big influx of respiratory illnesses. The viruses love the colder weather. Uh, This year is a busy year. We've had lots of busy years before as well. We do have the double whammy this year of kids getting COVID and and some of them with underlying health conditions needing hospitalisation, along with all the usual winter illnesses like influenza, RSV and some of those other germs that make kids sick. So yeah, we're busy. Are you putting in, I mean, what sort of hours are the staff putting in? Yeah, pretty long hours. I guess the other thing that's uh, particularly noticeable this year is just the amount of staff sickness we're experiencing. That's true across all industries and probably with your team as well. So we are asking a lot of our, our people. Thank goodness they rise to the challenge. They do every year, and they are this year. It is challenging, though. There's no doubt about it. But we're doing everything we can to support them. But, yeah, for sure, there's some long shifts being put in. Have you had to manage any outbreaks of COVID in any of the wards or anything? I I guess the period of time we had in New Zealand before COVID really landed and and spread throughout the community, we had a long time to prepare, and we learnt from our um, colleagues overseas, particularly in Australia and the UK, about the the best way to protect ourselves and the patients we care for so that we don't have big outbreaks of COVID. So we've continued those measures. We've got a whole lot of stringent processes, mask wearing, really good hand hygiene, all the sort of things that get promoted in the community. 
we do that on you know on steroids really yeah i mean i know i mean a lot of us who are parents we've had to take kids through hospital at different times and it's you know they're feeling very down and what have you and it's been wonderful to just have the care and comfort that comes from from medical staff there as well what about the wearing of masks for your staff because you know nurses smile was such a lovely thing there you know for, for kids how, how's how do you cope with that now and help provide you know that extra comfort part of things yeah, that, it's really interesting. And, and I mean, personally, I noticed that as well. Um, when I meet families and particularly patients and particularly y- younger children, mm. well, firstly, I think our whole population, including fairly young children, have sort of got used to masks. Like, it's really interesting. But I, I agree with you. There's something about the whole face-to-face, kanahi te kanahi, the value of actually seeing facial expression. So we work around that. Um, when we're up close, uh, and particularly with our sick children who are being admitted because of their contagious illnesses, um, we're obliged to wear masks because we want to protect them and we need to protect our staff as well. But uh, there's ways you can work around that. Like if I'm in a clinic setting and I'm a reasonable distance away, I can pull my mask down and smile at um at a child and yeah. their family just to make that connection because you're right that's so important it's not just about prescribing and making treatment plans I mean you know we, we want to talk about the Starship Foundation and I know Starship Foundation is asking for donations right now first off it's a bit of a shame that is it a bit of a shame that you have to be doing that I mean I thought I thought hopefully our taxes would help pay for all of that and you wouldn't need to yeah well you know a lot of taxes go into health and we get our share of that health budget. Health budget from public funding only ever goes so far. And what we want to do is provide a world-class service and continue to improve on it all the time. And to do that, we need to seek other forms of funding. I mean, uh, we've had the Starship Foundation supporting us for 30 years now, as long as there has been a Starship. And I think it's fair to say there wouldn't be a Starship if there weren't there wasn't a Starship Foundation. So I I, I take a pretty pragmatic view. We can run our service just with the public funding we have. We want to provide a better service and improve at a a rate that's faster than the public funding can allow. So that's what we do. So how tell us, um, how do the the donations help? I mean, like you said, you you can cover the costs of, of with the funding that you get. Tell us about the extra. So the Starship Foundation covers a whole range of things. At the moment, they've got 60 different projects and and initiatives they're funding, and that's right from helping extend our intensive care so that we've got more capacity to look after the sickest children from uh, around Aotearoa, uh, right through to supporting research. So we're always interested in finding better ways to do things and improve outcomes um, and improve equity across our whole population. So one of the ways we find out the best ways to do that is to do research. Uh, So quite a lot of money goes towards doing that. But there's also some simple but you know, really important things, supporting our staff. So we talked about our staff pulling long shifts at the moment. Starship Foundation provide nice little snack packs to keep their morale and well-being up and helping them get through. The winter's busy, like we talked about. This winter is as busy as any, and looking after our people is so that they can look after our patients and their whānau um, is also really important.
That's Dr. Greg Williams, and you can go to starshiponcall.org.nz. It's not a .co, it's a .org.nz. So starshiponcall, all one word, .org.nz to find out more or make a donation. 20 to 6, I'm Nathan Rarity. You're the first up here on RNZ National to come between now and the end of the show. We hear about the data harvesting done by the phone app, the one with the funny videos. And uh, also we're back talking cost of living and COVID with Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. The sort of weather in Wellington where you want to head to uh, where Auntie Lynn used to live there on Waitaha Way, you know, just off Hungerford Road, there's that little bank where you can go and you can hold your jacket up over your head <laughs> and lean over it because it's so windy you can just stay horizontal, Corindan from Morning Report. How are you? Very well, yeah, it is one of those days. A lot of, water, a lot of rain overnight in Wellington to begin with. Oh, yeah. It's raining, rain, rain, rain all the time at the moment. Um, uh, we are on weather watch here because mainly about swells for the south coast, so we will check in on that with a resident, or as you know, with the regional manager of the council, uh, the emergency management office, just to check in because you never know with the swells what direction they come from. They are going to be big. It's just whether they hit, hit the wrong place at the wrong time and they can cause problems for mm. any residents on the south coast of Wellington. Foot and mouth, uh, just... I guess uh, people getting a little bit more concerned uh, with this outbreak in Indonesia and the arrival, well not the arrival, there's no living virus in Australia, but they did find some uh, virus in some meat products in Melbourne and it's just starting to make people very nervous given the potential impact of a foot and mouth outbreak to both New Zealand and Australia would be devastating. So everyone's uh, upping their caution levels and doing more uh, vigilance, if you like, at the airports and that sort of thing. So we'll talk about that. Also, the other issue we'll talk about mainly this morning, construction, big booming costs. Uh, what can we do about it? Okay. Mm, Look go. forward to it. Thank you very much, Corinne Dan. Well, a new report's warning that social media app TikTok is collecting an, um, an alarming amount of users' personal data, which is at risk of being accessed by hackers. And even China's government, Australian cybersecurity company Internet 2.0, found that when in use, the app can just basically jump into any part of your phone. Uh, I spoke to Chief Executive Gorilla Technology of uh, Technology, Gorilla Technology, Paul Spain. He started by telling me what he made of the Australian report. The highlight is that there's data being collected that shouldn't be collected by TikTok and there are concerns due to Chinese law that means uh, any of that data that they do collect, things like uh, your contacts out of your uh, out of your phone, your GPS coordinates, that sort of stuff could end up in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. And also what we've seen recently that relates to that is that uh, a huge amount of data has, has been leaked by Chinese authorities. So your private confidential data shouldn't be trusted with TikTok, I guess, is uh, putting it uh, in short. So, look, I don't understand properly with TikTok. Is it, so is there evidence then that, that they are harvesting data? To, do they sell it to other places or are they harvesting data and then it seems like other people are stealing it? We have heard that staff within TikTok that shouldn't be have been accessing people's private data but the main concern is that they're collecting too much data and in an environment whereby you can't trust what might happen with that data over you know over a short or long-term period. And I imagine that when they're asked they're always going giving some sort of reassurances I mean are there any reassurances from TikTok that you know that they haven't been taking any of it you know any of this data? Sure, and and look, you know, they they will say that they treat your data very seriously and that it's secure and that it's never been accessed by 
the Communist Party. They will give all those sort of assurances. I, I guess as, as, as consumers, we have to make that call. Uh, and even more so, I guess, you know, governments have to make that call whether, you know, whether they feel uh, an organisation is, uh, is trustworthy enough to have a lot of data about our citizens. Doesn't this, this sounds eerily similar to a couple of years ago with a fellow by the name of Mark Zuckerberg having to sit there and say uh, similar stuff to Congress, right? Oh, we've got all this information, but we're not harvesting it. I mean, is, is what TikTok's doing, is it any different than what we had seen previously out of the likes of Facebook? Yeah, there, there are some differences. Apps like Facebook, yeah, I think we need to be concerned uh, around you know anywhere that our data goes. What we tend to see with US companies is that there is more transparency in terms of if there's a government request for uh, data from an American company, then there's only a very, very you know, limited number of scenarios where US companies would ever give up data and usually very, very small amounts in a manner that's not uh, made public. So whereas if you sort of compare that with China, where the government can basically walk in and say, look, we want, we'll, we'll take all this data and look, keep it under wraps. Don't tell anybody about it. So there, there does seem to be quite a big difference there. So, Paul, can you tell me this? Like, there'll be, you know, people might hear about this and go, gosh, I want to go and check and see if the kids have got TikTok on their phone. And, and you say to, you know, your 12, your 13-year-old, hey, there's this thing going, oh, it doesn't matter. It's just me doing dances. Or it's just me with friends. Why is it such a worry for everyday folks? Well, the more of our data that is out there, and particularly if it's stored uh, by organisations that may be less than trustworthy, then the more risk is that that falls into the wrong hand. So, you know, it might might get used for some sort of identity fraud. There maybe is a, a criminal group that, that takes that information. Maybe they decide to target uh, your family. Um, there's really, you know, I guess a, a broad range of things that can happen when what you assume to be private and confidential isn't. And, you know, in some cases, these apps are, you know, probably collecting a lot more data than would happen if a, if somebody had a private investigator tail you and, and try and uh, create a dossier on you, right? Yeah. So what can people do then to try and protect their data while using TikTok or any any other app, I guess? Personally, I would, I would recommend avoiding TikTok if you can. And I know that that's pretty hard because it's, it's one of those very, very addictive apps that folks like to use. Look, when I've been asked to comment it on, the, on it in the past, I have uh, installed it and have it, had a look, but I've never signed in to the app. And then you go ahead and you, you, know, you uninstall it afterwards. But really, we should be very cautious about what are the apps we're installing are they from a trustworthy uh, company, and how much you know legitimate data are we going to give them when they you know start asking for all your details? You might set up a burner email address and other bits and pieces, but the yeah the more data that you you feed these things, the more likely it is to be leaked in the future at, at some point possibly publicly on the internet. That's the CEO of Gorilla Technology, Paul Spain. Well, uh, we race towards 6 o'clock right now. It's 10 to. Every week we catch up with the Finance and Deputy uh, Prime Minister, 
Grant Robertson. Uh, I started by asking him whether it's time to introduce stricter rules around mask wearing and thought about this given that so many people apparently are just finding it way too difficult to pop one on these days. Yeah, look, I mean, it's really important that we do keep reminding ourselves of what will keep us all healthy and safe and our family and friends healthy and safe. And there is, I know, further work being done on, on campaigns to promote the public health measures. You know, it's really important in those indoor settings uh, that people do continue to wear their masks. It is, you know, there it is in the rules around retail, as you mentioned, with supermarkets, public transport, uh, planes and so on. And people generally are pretty good there. I think it's just taking a bit of a moment to remember that really what we're saying is, you know, we'd like you to wear your mask as often as you can. And when you're outside and you're running around, obviously that doesn't quite work. But when you are inside, um, it is important to think about wearing your mask, especially if you're around people, you, you know, you're not familiar with or you're in an enclosed environment. I also think it's important to acknowledge none of us are perfect, you know. There is, you know, times from time to time things happen and people won't be wearing their masks. But if we can continue to remind ourselves, and I am aware that there'll be more more promotion of that policy and other public health policies coming through. Can can we not just make it mandatory in in indoor events to wear one? Well, it is in a lot of indoor spaces, so it is mandatory okay. in, in retail and in, and in places like theatres and, and cinemas and so on. And obviously, you know, when people are in their workplaces, they'll come to their own rules around that. But we certainly are strongly encouraging the wearing of masks in, in settings inside. Yeah, because I know that it's, you know, COVID is getting into aged care facilities now, which I know was, I mean, that was way back at the start, was the first one, you know, before we knew a lot about this, this is who we were de- all desperate, you know, to, to protect because they gave their sacrifices for us along their lives, so we wanted to do ours with the trying to stay in. But what's your sense of how that sector is coping or can cope with, with COVID in it? Look, you know, I visited a couple of aged care centres myself in my own area and and they work very, very hard to maintain standards pretty much across the board. I think if you want to visit an aged care centre, you've got to be vaccinated and you've got to show proof of a negative uh, rapid antigen test. That was certainly the case for a centre I visited recently. Obviously, the duty of care is huge and, and many of the people are now aged care facilities are vulnerable and so you know they take it very seriously and we continue to support them uh, to be able to do that. Obviously the sector is is struggling a bit with as many others are with labour shortages that's happened as a result of, of the closed borders. We've again been working with the sector to try to bring more people in but it it's definitely a stress and I think most of the centres are, are really trying to to limit visitors because you know they want to limit the spread but obviously also continue to provide opportunities for families to be able to visit their loved ones. Yeah, let's, let's, um, something we've never talked about, cost of living. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's get into that one. Obviously, yeah, I mean, we've all seen it highest in, in 32 years. Are there further actions that the government can, can take to bring it down? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, when it comes to inflation, that sits at the core of the role of the Reserve Bank, and they've outlined their plan for how they'll deal with that. That is, you know, the lifting of the of the official cash rate and they've given a track for that and, and that's the tool they use and it's one of the two core responsibilities that we give them. From the point of view of the government, our, our job as much as anything is to try to limit the impacts on people whilst also looking at the drivers of inflation and so we can combine those two things together by, for example, the extension we made to the fuel excise duty cut, the yeah. half price public transport because that 
both makes sure that we're reducing the impact on people, but also has actually kept inflation a bit lower. Um, but we've got to get to the source. And an example there is food prices. And we know we've got to do much more to make sure New Zealanders don't pay so much for their food. And so the work we're doing with the breaking up of the of the supermarket duopoly, uh, getting our com- competitors in the supermarket sector to have more easy access to, to land, to build their stores, to the wholesale goods they need to put on their shelves. Similarly, long term, getting ourselves to be less dependent on volatile and expensive commodities like oil. Mm. And that's why our climate change program is, is about getting people into EVs, getting people into more sustainable modes of transport. So in the here and now, we'll keep providing you know the financial support that we can to people, especially those on low and middle incomes. But we've also got a job to do to start reducing some of the long-term drivers of inflation. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about those. So we've got, we had, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two, I guess, opposing scenarios here uh, from on the show this week. So earlier on, on Tuesday morning, actually, we had uh, the economist, uh, Shamobil Yakub on the, the program, and he said the government should be targeting support to those living in poor socioeconomic conditions. Uh, that was his thing. What more can you do to help vulnerable people during these times? Well, look, that's the very reason why we had our big package on the 1st of April, which lifted um, main benefits for the for the third time in, in three years. We also lifted student allowances there, superannuation, family tax credit, childcare support. Followed that up on the 1st of May with the winter energy payment for, for superannuitants and those on benefits. And now uh, we have the cost of living payment that we announced in the budget, the first of those going out on the 1st of August to people earning less than $70,000 who don't get the winter energy payment. So we really have targeted our attention there and we continue to provide that support. It is a matter of doing things that support people but don't exacerbate the very problem we're trying to solve, which is inflation. And so the advice we got was that we needed to be temporary and targeted. That's what we've tried to do, you know, and make sure that support's still there but doesn't make the problem worse. What's the delicate dance between trying to do this kind of thing where I know that you know you can't set the price in a supermarket you can't set the price in a petrol station I see petrol companies gross margin on petrol soared to over 60 cents a litre last week that was in a story and and stuff that I saw and yet I mean I guess you can't get in can you regulate a sector to try and do that like what is the delicate dance of please don't do these margins but from what we can see they're all getting pretty decent margins and earnings out of this yeah, look, and I guess, you know, in the supermarket sector, for example, that's really what we've done. We've said, look, we did a Commerce Commission study. We we came to see that New Zealanders were paying way too much for their, for their groceries. And so we've said about some regulatory and legal changes when it comes to, for example, opening up the wholesale end. We've said to the supermarket duopoly, sort it out yourself. We'll give you a few months to do that. If you can't, then we will regulate when it comes to the petrol companies, again, we, we did the market study. We now have the information, the fact we even know what the margins are as a result of a, a law change that we made. We've been keeping a close eye on those margins. They did spike last week. Minister Woods uh, contacted the, the petrol companies immediately and said, what's going on here? And I do see that the prices have come down a bit in um, the first few days of this week. So, you know, we've got a job to do to regulate where we can and where we should, but also work alongside and make sure that, you know, we we expose and have transparent what's going on here. But look, you know, in the end, this is a global phenomenon. Nathan, I know we've talked about that a few times before. We've got inflation up over 9% in the UK and the US, forecast to get to 7% in Australia later in the year. Most economists think we're peaking at about 7.3%, but this is most definitely a global issue. 
driven by COVID and and the supply chain issues in Ukraine and, and New Zealanders are going to find it tough for a period of time, but, but we are there supporting them and we are trying to get to those root causes. That's the Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson. Well... Of course, if you are listening to the show earlier on, you'll know that today is Taco's birthday. This is uh, his hit from 1982, Putting on the Ritz. And this tonight will be the uh, the team of Morning Report, all of them, getting all gussied up in their flashiest, fanciest clothes. Uh, Radio Awards this evening, handing you over to them now. You might not know this, but Morning Report host Susie and Corin up for Best Talk Presenter, yes, in the New Zealand Radio Awards tonight. And uh, the uh, show also up for Best Podcast by Radio Show. Good luck tonight, team. Unfortunately, it has to be an online thing, so, you know, I guess you just get get fancy and be fancy at home by yourselves. From all of us here at First Up, have yourselves a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. Up or poor. Have you seen the well-to-do up and down Park Avenue on that famous thoroughfare with the noses in the air? High hats and arrow collars, white spats and lots of dollars.